If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we're back with another keyword episode and the fantastic Dr. Jillian Isaac. Today, listeners will know that we always do either one or two um, words that apply from the ABA content outline. And if we do one, it's because it's maybe slightly separately how it applies to the basic and advanced. And that's what we're doing today. So we're going to cover the epidural category and both the basic and advanced version of that. Remember, if you're listening and you need CME credit, you can go to the ACRAC.com website and click on the links there to get CME credit. And let's jump right in. I'm thrilled to have Jillian back. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Can I get CME credit? You, if you need <laughs> it, you can get it for sure. Right, go I'm to the sorry. website. Okay. All right. So like Dr. Wilpaw said, today we are doing epidural the keyword epidural and from the basic, it comes up in the basic and the advanced content outline. So if you're looking at the actual ABA content out, content outline, it's on page 11 under regional anesthesia. Uh, and this is what they want you to know. Indications, contraindications, sites of action, factors that influence onset, duration, and termination of action, systemic toxicity and a test dose, complications, and that includes just complications of the procedure, but also they want you to know about timing of neuraxial after any type of anticoagulant. So if you're on like a heparin or a Plavix or anything like that. And then they want you to know about the physiologic effects of epidurals. And then listed in a different section of the outline under anatomy, they want you to know the anatomy. And then interestingly enough, if you go to the advanced outline, uh, the yeah, the advanced content outline on page 23, it basically just says neuraxial blocks. <laughs> so just got this big like blanket. So I think it's pretty fair game for both, to be honest. I think you're going to see this on the basic and the advanced. So there's a lot of uh, overlap between the two. So I figured we'd start off with anatomy. It's a good place to start. Um, again, that's on, under anatomy on the keyword outline. And do you remember, Dr. Wopa, the boundaries of the epidural space? <laughs> so this is something they tested. I remember this being on my test years ago, back in 09. Well, certainly uh, at the top, right, you've got the foramen magnum um, coming out of the skull base. Um, inferiorly, uh, you, you're going to have to remind me there. Um, okay. Certainly anteriorly, I remember this being like uh, very confusing, right? Because anteriorly is the posterior longitudinal. Like, right, and that right. was always very strange right. why it's called yeah. posterior, but it's anterior. Right. right. So that's always a little crazy. And then, of course, um, the vertebral bodies and discs um, laterally and, and pedicles and uh, inner vertebral foramina, um, and then posteriorly, the ligamentum flavum. Right. So I think so, that's, that's it. Yep. And inferiorly, it's the sacrococcygeal ligament. So it basically gotcha. goes, like, I, I say stem to stern. <laughs> stem to stern, vertebral bodies to ligaments and flavum. And they do ask that. It's not a super common question, but it does come up from time to time. The question that is actually more frequently asked is the layers. So when you're starting at either an epidural or a spinal, they'll ask what layers do you go through? So you start with skin and then it's sub-Q and then supraspinous and then interspinous ligaments and then ligaments and flavum. And then you're in the epidural space. And if you go too far, then you've hit dura and then you're into the CSF. Um, but this is these questions are probably more on the basic than the advanced, but they're tested almost every year. This is almost a guaranteed question in some way, the anatomy of the epidural space. So here are some practice questions about anatomy. So the epidural space is located between the A, arachnoid and pia mater, 
B, dura and arachnoid matter. C, dura matter and ligamentum flavum. D, arachnoid matter and the vertebral muscle layer. And so as you just laid out, that's going to be C, the dura and the ligamentum flavum. So you want to be in between there. Right. And I just want to point out that it's not an actual space. It is a potential space. So every now and again, you run up against someone who doesn't really have a great epidural space that the moment you get through ligament, you're actually through the dura. But most people, they do have that potential space there. Okay, next question. During epidural placement using a midline approach, the epidural needle penetrates all the following anatomical layers except A, ligamentum flavum, B, subarachnoid membrane, C, supraspinous ligament, D, intraspinous ligament. Yeah, and this, as you said up front, this, I've seen this so many times, this version of a question right. just like this. Sometimes they get tricky and they will have that posterior longitudinal ligament on yes. here. And yes. that's a common mistake people make is they think, well, it's got to go through that. That's posterior. And remember, it's actually not. It's anterior. Right, it's anterior, yeah. So if, it, if that were on here, that's not the right answer. But in this case, obviously, the right answer is B, subarachnoid membrane. You do not want to go through that or else you're not any longer in the epidural space. Right. And then the other iteration of this question that I've seen, and I couldn't find one in digging through my question sources, but it's sometimes they'll ask if you're doing the like paramedium approach, what layers do you go through? And they want you to know the differences between midline versus paramedium. Okay. Next question. An epidural block is safer at the L3 to L4 interspace than at the T12 to L1 interspace because of the location of the. And before I give you the answer choices, one, this is just a test taking strategy that I learned in medical school when I was working for Kaplan and talking about like test theory and test prep. If you can answer the question in your head before you look at the answer choices, that's almost always the correct answer. So I really encourage you like to read the question stem and try to answer it and not heavily rely on the multiple choice answers, because that's how you know if you really know it. So, um, you could probably just say, right, like off the top of your head, why the L3, L4 interspace is um, a safer location than T12 to L1. But these are the, the choices. A, anterolateral epidural veins. B, inferior border of the coda equina. C, inferior border of the conus medullaris. D, inferior border of the subarachnoid space. E, blood supply to the anterior spinal cord. Right. And so hopefully, as, as you were alluding to, you think about this and you think, oh, I remember that T12L1, that's the inferior border of the conus medullaris, and that's what's there. And it's clearly not down at L3L4. So that's why you're, you're not in danger of hitting that when you're down at L3L4. Right. You basically don't want to hit the spinal cord. Um, the coda equina, it goes, it's actually going to be down there, sometimes even down to L5. And I think it's probably why when you do a dural puncture and sometimes people really feel like that electricity, the idea is it's like the coda equina, like it's just kind of moving away and it feels just really funky. Um, yeah. But it's okay to be near the coda equina. You just don't want to be near the actual cord. And the end of the cord is the conus medullaris. And Jillian, just right. backing up one second, yep. you had mentioned, and, and should we tell people, like when, when that question comes up about the uh, paramedian approach versus the midline approach, what do they want to keep in mind? I, I actually not sure. You no, know, honestly, I, when I was saying it, I was like, at the, off the top of my head, I probably couldn't even <laughs> yeah. do it. Okay. Well, people uh, should then just keep that in mind. Yes. That that's something keep it that in might mind. come up. It, it, yeah. it does come up. And I, I did not find a question like that, but I have seen that. Yeah. So I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I just don't remember the differences, but I know there is one or two. Yeah. I think there's the fewer layers of, um, of the, of ligaments, right? Because you're kind of bypassing yes. them. So you're obviously still going through skin and sub tissue. Sub-cue. But my I think the ligament is different before you get to ligaments and flavor, but I don't want to say the wrong thing either. Yeah, no, I'm not 100% sure either. Um, I have a feeling that maybe it's the supraspinous and intraspinous, you may not hit those. It may just be, you may, I think, just go f straight to the ligamentum flavum, right. but check us on that. Don't um, don't no. take it for, for I should know okay. that. A little embarrassing, but it's okay. <laughs> okay, to admit what you don't know. It's important. <laughs> it's good. It is good to say. And I don't do OB anesthesia, so I'm, yeah. I'm going to feel less guilty about it, but um, it's out there, so take a look. All right. Okay, so the next anatomy question is, through which of the following structures would a spinal needle or epidural needle not pass during a midline placement of a subarachnoid block in the L3 to L4 lumbar space? A, supraspinous ligament, B, intraspinous ligament, C, posterior longitudinal ligament, D, dura matter. And we talked about this, right? So even though you're tempted to think, oh, well, posterior right. ligaments, we must go through those. It's not the posterior right. longitudinal ligament. So the answer is C. Right. Okay. The pop felt just before entering the epidural space represents passage through which ligament? A, posterior longitudinal ligament, B, ligaments and flavum, C, supraspinous ligament, D, intraspinous ligament. And that final layer we talked about right before the epidural space is that ligament and flavum, so that's the pop. And it's so satisfying when you pop, just 
<laughs> it's one of those things also that I remember not, fe- you know, the first several epidurals that you do, maybe the first several dozen, you may not feel it, right? It's kind of like when you first start listening to heart yeah, sounds and you're like, right. I can't tell what it doesn't what make any sense. You have no idea what you're doing. And then when you finally right. figure it out, it's so yep. and then you can feel it. Yeah, exactly. So this last question in anatomy, I put this in here. It's not necessarily specific to epidural, but it comes up year after year after year. And so I think it's an important question to have. And that's why I put it in this keyword podcast episode. So the plasma concentration of equal doses of a local anesthetic is highest when the site of administration is A, axillary brachial plexus, B, caudal, C, intercostal, D, lumbar epidural, E, subcutaneous. Right. Definitely this stuff comes up a lot. And you just have to remember that intercostal, not always, but most of these you'll get right just by remembering intercostal is the site of most absorption. So intercostal is the answer here. It goes in an order. It's intercostal followed by epidural caudal, which are equal, followed by brachial plexus and femoral sciatic, which are equal, followed by sub-Q. Again, very frequently asked questions. So I wanted to put this on. Um, the, the, so the only the, exception, of course, is IV, right? So there's obviously, yes, if they were to right, put IV on there, right, that would good, be good. Thank you. Obvious. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Yeah. It I probably does exist, though. Yeah. yeah. And it, it just, sure. you know, if, if they try to throw you off by putting IV, then that would be the answer. <laughs> okay. So again, anatomy, very, very commonly tested, more basic than advanced. Um, the last time it was tested was actually 2020, came up in 2018, 2012. So, you know, it's a frequent question. All right, moving on to our next key point, which are indications and contraindications. So there are actually many indications, right? Labor, lower extremity surgery, belly surgery, um, thoracic surgery, lots of reasons why we use them. There are actually very few absolute contraindications. So the one that, and it's different. So it's depending on what source you read, like Bearish is a little different than Miller, which is a little bit different than like Nysora. So it's, it's not, the list isn't the same source to source, but the, the ones that most people agree on is it is absolutely contraindicated in a patient who refuses or is it, like can't sit still, like can't cooperate with the procedure. Severe coagulation and norm, abnormalities like DIC. Um, and then those are really the, the two, but some people will put on their elevated intracranial pressure, and then some people will put in bleeding diapheses, right? Depending on other sources, that gets pushed to the relative contraindications. So the relative contraindication list is longer. So sepsis, elevated ICP, anticoagulants, thrombocytopenia, bleeding diathesis, preload-dependent states like aortic stenosis, fever or infection, or placement in anesthetized in an anesthetized adult. But again, some of these are a little controversial and a lot of them are like risk benefit, right? Like the one you get in OB is someone who is like a Malin Patty four, who weighs 500 pounds, who just ate fried chicken, who now needs a section and her platelets are like 60,000. Well, on like the risk benefit ratio, it probably makes more sense to do an epidural than to go to sleep, right? So they're not going to ask those questions. They're going to have to ask about ones that are more straightforward. And the ones that are even more controversial than that are like previous back surgery, pre-existing neurological injury like MS, or the needle through a tattoo, which I think we got past that. But um, they're not going to ask about things that are not defined. And so contraindications are kind of hard because most are yes, no. Is this contraindicated or not? But what you're really seeing in this category is they're most likely going to test ASRA guidelines for neuraxial with anticoagulants and platelet inhibitors. That was tested in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 21. So it's not so much like what's an absolute or relative contraindication as much as it is like when is it safe to do this after anticoagulation. So that's almost a guaranteed question. So Getting back to like the contraindications. So contraindications for naxial blockade include or includes severe aortic stenosis, severe bleeding tendency, existing severe hypotension, all of the above. Yeah, not, these are not, of course, as you said, all absolute contraindications, right. but certainly all would fall under relative contraindications right. or things you need to think really hard about. But if they're going to ask a question about contraindications, it's going to be just like that. Like the things that you really would right, have to do like a huge risk benefit analysis. Because I have put epidurals in patients with severe aortic stenosis. You just have to load it incredibly slowly and carefully. But again, um, if you're going to see it, that's the way it's going to come up. All right. During the placement of an epidural in a 64-year-old patient scheduled for hip replacement, the patient complains of a sharp, sustained pain radiating down her left leg 
leg as the catheter is inserted to two centimeters? What is the most appropriate action at this time? A, leave the catheter at two centimeters and deliver a test dose. B, give a small dose to relieve pain, then advance the catheter. C, withdraw the catheter one centimeter, then give a test dose. D, withdraw the needle and catheter, then reinsert in a new position. E, abort the procedure. Yeah, and so you're certainly more of an expert here than I am, but you know, given that it's a sharp and sustained pain, it's radiating down the leg, and it's really if the catheter is at two centimeters, then it's not even you know through the needle yet. So um, yeah, unless they mean two centimeters beyond the end of the needle, I but, think that's what they mean, two centimeters. Okay. Beyond, yeah, yeah. So regardless, you can't leave it there. It's not in far enough. Um, you know, uh, so I think this all bodes relatively poorly for that current placement. So probably just coming out D- choice D with the needle and the catheter and trying a new position right. would, would make the most sense. But is that what you would do? Yeah. And just because you, it's going to happen, you sometimes get paresthesias or these like ridiculous pains. It's probably because you're tickling a nerve root and it, you don't have to abort the procedure. So it's not a contraindication. You just want to stop and then re, reposition, try a new spot. Okay, so a 75-year-old woman with a history of pulmonary embolism is scheduled for a right lower lobectomy for lung cancer. She is receiving daltaparin for DVT prophylaxis. How long after the last dose should one wait prior to a placement of a thoracic epidural? A, 12 hours, B, 24 hours, C, 72 hours, D, no waiting is necessary since the dose is for prophylaxis and is low. Yeah, so the key here is that it's prophylaxis as opposed to treatment doses. So if she was being treated for, uh, if she was on treatment doses, um, that, um, uh, and it's a little strange because they're giving you this history of pulmonary embolism and they're saying she's not. Then, so maybe yeah, it was a remote right. pulmonary I think it's embolism. probably remote and they're throwing, yeah. I think they're trying to throw you off a little bit. Right. And, and but they do say, carefully. right. Right. They do say specifically DVT prophylaxis. So for prophylactic right. doses of, um, Daltaparin or Lovenox as well, it's 12 hours. Right. If it was treatment doses, it, uh, it'd be tw- assuming reasonable kidney function to be 24 hours. Yeah, I agree. And I think most people might even send labs to confirm, if you, especially if you're in the treatment dose, not necessarily the prophylactic dose. And to be fair, these are things that I don't always keep in my head. Like there is a lot of these drugs out there, like anoxaparin, daltaparin, um, I have the Azra app <laughs> and I recommend it. it. It's very, it's fantastic. It's hard to keep this all straight. So I, I look it up every time just to be careful. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah. Next question. How long should a patient be off clopidogrel, which is Plavix, before an epidural block is performed? A, 24 hours, B, seven days, C, 14 days, D, no waiting is necessary. And in that, uh, in those choices, very clearly seven days is right. Sometimes you hear five to seven days, but they didn't give you that option. So between one day, seven days, 14 days, and not waiting, certainly seven days is the right answer there. Right. And NSAIDs are fine. There was controversy for a while, like someone who's like on aspirin, but we've decided that NSAIDs are fine. That's not a problem. If you're on um, Plavix, then it's seven days, but Ticlodipine is actually 14 days. So those are the current recommendations. And they do ask this. And you I don't know if you've seen it. It comes up on my Mocha Minutes a lot, actually, these type yeah. of questions. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't go away once you pass right. the, no, no. the basic or the advanced. This is going to be there for life. So good to know. All right. So moving away from those questions, we're on to key point three, which are sites of actions. So the site of action of... Um, and I'm talking here about opioids, not necessarily local anesthetics. So the site of action is the mu opioid receptor found mainly within the substantia gelatinosa layer in the dorsolateral horn of the spinal cord. And I put that in there because I couldn't find a question, but I know that they've asked that. I remember seeing these type of questions in the past and they like asking like, where does, where do the opioids work? if you're doing it either intrathecal or epidural. And then hydrophilic opioids have a higher degree of solubility within the CSF. And that's why they spread cephalad easier. So like morphine, it actually kind of dissolves right into the CSF for lack of a better description. And that's why it spreads around. And that's why you can see delayed respiratory depression as the CSF starts circulating over like the 24 hours. Whereas ones that are lipophilic, they have a rapid onset, but a much shorter duration of action. And that's because they get redistributed very quickly. So they, they go to the mu receptor, they have their action, they're back out to the systemic circulation. So there's a poor bioavailability in the spinal cord. So that's like fentanyl. And this is tested not as common, but they do come up. Um, last time it was tested was 2015. So compared with epidural administration of hydrophilic opioids, epidural administration of lipophilic opioids is associated with A, earlier onset of pruritus, 
B, greater motor block when combined with local anesthetics. C, higher incidence of delayed respiratory depression. D, lesser sensitivity to reversal of analgesia by naloxone. E, slower onset of analgesia. And so as you said, the uh, these lipophilic um, opioids like fentanyl are going to have an earlier onset of action and therefore also an earlier onset of things like puritis. So A exactly. would make sense. Right. But then it will go away quicker. <laughs> right. Yeah. And all of my residents know this because I say I itch so bad with my epidural. It was awful. I like excoriated myself. So I really, for like 10 years after having children, got away from putting fence mill anywhere near a block. I've just gone back to it in the past couple of years, but it was so miserable. So that puritis can be a real, real thing. Uh, so next question at equipotent doses, which of the following opioids is most likely to migrate cephalad in cerebrospinal fluid after epidural administration? A, fentanyl, B, hydromorphone, C, meperidine, D, morphine. And what they're really asking here is which is least lipophilic and so um, the answer here is going to be morphine. And in general, you should think of morphine as one that is going to do, mo- do a lot of spreading. It's going to um, stay right. in, the, uh, in the epidural space. Yeah, exactly. And I've never used either dilated or meperidine in an epidural. So really, you're down between fentanyl and morphine. And fentanyl, like we said, because it's lipophilic, it goes, it has an action, and it moves right away. And it's not going to really spread that much. I actually right. had an attending when I was a resident who liked to use uh, hydromorphone or Dilaudid in, in epidurals. Really? Yeah. And it was, um, he would always teach, and, and this is what we saw clinically, that it was kind of somewhere in between. So it was, it's had <laughs> significantly better spread than fentanyl, but not as much as, as morphine. Amazing. So if you wanted something maybe that would have a little less risk of histamine release and itching, um, something that would get you more spread for a big incision, but you didn't you know need as much or want to go as much as morphine, then hydromorphone was a kind of in between. Yeah, I've actually never used them. So cultural cultural differences. Yeah. All right. So the last question in this category is compared with epidural morphine, intrathecal morphine produces A, better relief of visceral pain, B, greater loss of analgesia after administration of naloxone, C, less pruritus, D, less urinary retention, E, more respiratory depression. And so intrathecal morphine, uh, we think of as causing more respiratory depression. That's probably the answer here. And, and the rest of it, I think you can get equal visceral pain relief um, with epidural morphine. Obviously, you need to adjust the dose. Um, they both should be, you know, uh, reversible with naloxone. And then the puritis and urinary retention uh, certainly should not be less with intrathecal. Right. Yeah. So the idea with the intrathecal is like it's in the CSF. So it's going to be spreading around. And like we talked about as the CSF moves, you can get that respiratory depression. The idea with like the epidural morphine is you're putting it in the epidural space. So you're going to have this like reservoir and you're going to have this slow kind of like extended release, for lack of a better description, across the dura because it's not so lipophilic. And so the, some of the respiratory depression and the movement, you're just not going to have the same concentration in the intrathecal, in the CSF as with intrathecal. Sounds good. Okay. So moving on to key point four, which is factors influencing onset duration and termination of action. And this is now I'm talking about local anesthetics. So before I was talking about opioids and now we're talking about local anesthetics. Um, and this is this was actually last tested in 2021. So this is like currently in the question banks. And they like to ask about lipophilicity in local anesthetics. And this is a really key point here is lipid solubility correlates with potency. So if you have a greater lipid solubility, it enhances diffusion through all those neural coverings and all the cell membranes, and it can get to those sodium channels. So you actually need a lower milligram dose. So lipid, if you have a local that's more lipid soluble, it has greater potency. Whereas it something that has high protein binding, that correlates with duration of action. So for example, bupivacaine, it really hangs on to those sodium channel receptors. Once it's bound, it's like bound, right? So that's going to, it's going to be hard to compete off and go away. And that's why the duration of action of bupivacaine is a lot longer than say lidocaine. And that's also why bupivacaine is way worse if you have a local anesthetic toxicity, because it just (laughs) sits on that sodium channel and it's really, really hard to get off of it. And then um, dissociation constant is what determines the time of onset and also like PKA. So if you have a local that has a PKA that's close to physiological PKA, then you have a greater proportion of that local that actually can diffuse across the membrane and 
is in a, you know, because it has to be associated, not ionized across the membrane. And you'll have more of that. And so you'll, because you have more of a concentration gradient, it'll set up quicker. So what agents that have lower PKA set up quicker. So like lidocaine is 7.8, that sets up quicker than bupivacaine. The confounding factor there is corpocaine because it actually has a higher PKA, it's 8.7. But because it has a very low risk for systemic toxicity because it's an ester and it's broken down by esterases and it's not an amide, you can actually just give it in huge amounts. You can do 3% chlorprocaine, 20 ml. And so you're basically creating this massive um, diffusion gradient that drives quick onset. So that confuses people sometimes because usually it is associated with PKA, but chlorprocaine is the exception there. Okay, so these are the type of questions you're going to see. And again, I think this section right here for the advanced exam, super high yield. I think these come up every year. All right, we'll be right back with another question from Dr. Jillian Isaac. Stay with us. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, we're back. Let's hear the next question. Which of the following properties of epidurally administered local anesthetics determines the extent to which epinephrine will prolong the duration of the block? A, molecular weight, B, lipid solubility, C, PKA, D, concentration. Yeah, I think this is a little bit of a strange question because they're, they're adding in this epinephrine thing. And so I think what, they, what they're getting at here is that what epinephrine does, the way it prolongs block is by vasoconstricting. And so you're going to have less... Um, of the local anesthetic be able to escape through the bloodstream to get out and lose effect. And so what they want to get at here is that if it's very lipid soluble, then that will have less of an effect because it's going to be able to just diffuse still, uh, away. Exactly. Right. right. Can still so I think lipid solubility is... Right. Right. So exactly. the, the epinephrine will have less of an effect on a very lipid soluble agent, which I think is what they're getting at here. Yes. Okay. So the next question is compared with morphine, and now we're going from local back to... Uh, Opioid. So compare with morphine, a single epidural administration of fentanyl is associated with A, delayed onset of analgesia, B, increased incidence of pruritus, C, increased incidence of respiratory depression, D, longer duration of action, E, more restricted segmental spread. And as we said, this is, again, fentanyl is going to not spread as much because it's going to diffuse out of the epidural space. And so your answer is going to be that fentanyl will have more restricted segmental spread because it won't stay in to spread as much as morphine would. Exactly. So now getting back to locals, the primary determinant of local anesthetic potency is A, PKA, B, molecular weight, C, lipid solubility, D, protein binding. And I know I'm like drilling this in, but it just comes up again and again. I think it's such a confusing concept. Yeah. And this is a much more typical, rather than that first one that they kind of had this this epinephrine mixed in. This is a very typical, straightforward version of these questions. And again, potency is determined by lipid solubility. So C is the answer here. Which of the following would hasten the onset and increase the clinical duration of action of a local anesthetic and provide the greatest depth of motor and sensory blockade when used for epidural anesthesia? So I will say that this question is a little weird, and it's an older question that was taken out of the question bank, but I think the concept is solid. So A, increasing the volume of the local anesthetic, B, increasing the concentration of local anesthetic, C, increasing the dose, D, placing the patient in a head down position. 
Yeah, so de- I agree with you. This is definitely confusing. And I think ultimately the answer is going to be increase the dose. It is, again, you could increase the volume, but it could be very dilute. So that is, I think, what they're getting at. That may or may not increase the dose. Increasing the concentration, but giving just a tiny little volume, again, might right. not actually increase the dose. So however you do it, if you increase the dose, that's going to be the Right. And that's how I see it. I think the dose is taking into consideration the volume and the concentration. Right. And A and B are kind of the variables in C. But again, the, the concept is solid. It's a little bit of an odd question, but. All right, moving on to key point four, which is systemic toxicity, which is basically local anesthetic toxicity, and then testose. Um, so the testose of an epidural has two components. You want to make sure that your catheter is not intrathecal, nor is it intravascular. And typically, we use lidocaine and epinephrine for that. So lidocaine is to test for intrathecal, and epi is to test for intravascular. You don't actually have to test intravascular with epi, um, especially if someone's like severe preeclamptic. And I've seen these come up on prior written tests. I couldn't, especially the advanced, I couldn't find any questions about it, but you can actually separate out the components of the testos and you can test for the intravascular component with either hundred mics of fentanyl, or you can get a precordial Doppler and you can test with air. So there are ways that you can test that you don't have to use epi if you're worried about someone's blood pressure. And with that said, they don't they don't write questions about a test dose very frequently, um, but they do ask questions about last local anesthetic toxicity. It's almost a guaranteed question. It was tested in 2019, 2020, 2021. We did cover this topic in the local anesthetic keyword review, but I did pull a few questions because I love when things overlap. I think it's just really good to review it again. So which of the following is the earliest sign of lidocaine toxicity from a high blood level? A, shivering, B, nystagmus, C, lightheadedness, and dizziness, D, tonic-clonic seizures. And actually, you probably know this if you've ever delivered anesthesia in the operating room, because when you give that bolus of lidocaine, if you do it uh, far enough in advance um, that they're still awake, you will have people say, oh, I feel lightheaded or dizzy, or I have some ringing in my ears. So those are the things that come first, um, certainly before. Yeah, or they have that taste in their mouth. So um, that C is going to be the answer here. Right. It's basically like the, the, like, less concerning symptoms, right? Once you get to nystagmus and seizures, like you're definitely in the way more concerning area. So the earliest signs are going to be the least concerning things. All right, next question. So a 75-year-old female with ovarian cancer is scheduled for a total abdominal hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo oophorectomy, and tumor debulking. Thoracic epidural anesthesia was performed and a test dose of 1.5% lidocaine with 1 to 200,000 epinephrine is injected through the epidural uh, catheter that resulted in no evidence of adverse sequelae. Um, the catheter, I'm so, yeah, the catheter is threaded and no negative aspiration. Everything looks good. And then they gave 10 ml of half percent bupivacaine through the epidural. 30 seconds later, the patient became agitated and complained of lightheadedness, tinnitus, and feeling faint, but is still able to move all of her extremities. Her blood pressure decreased from 150 over 70 to 100 over 45, and her heart rate decreased from 85 to 55. The patient maintained spontaneous breathing throughout with an oxygen saturation of 95% on room air. The most likely diagnosis is A, local anesthetic toxicity, B, high epidural anesthesia, C, total spinal anesthesia, D, anaphylactic reaction. So you may be tempted to say, you know, either high epidural or high spinal, but, uh, you know, she can move all her extremities. So that doesn't make sense. So it's probably last. It's probably local. This was a total spinal. She wouldn't be breathing on her own. Like you would have like apnea. Right. And if it was a high epidural, you would expect with 0.5% bupivacaine, like motor and sensory deficits. So you don't have that. And anaphylaxis just doesn't really like fit into the picture here. So it is last. And in reading up like the explanation that this, person wrote is that last is probably very underdiagnosed. We probably just chalk it up. to like, oh, that's just a high level. They'll be fine. But we probably see more vascular absorption of local than we realize, especially when we get like a big dose all at once. Okay. Next question. All of the following local anesthetic systemic toxicity treatment measures should be performed when caring for a patient who may be experiencing toxicity, except A, stop epidural medication administration. B, support the airway with 100% oxygen. C, administer intravenous epinephrine according to ACLS protocols. D, administer an intralipid bolus and and continuous infusion. Yeah, and this should, even if you didn't know what they're getting at here, which is that the dose of epi is actually different in last than it is for essentially all other forms of cardiac arrest, 
Uh, you should still be able to say, well, obviously you're going to stop the epidural medication. Obviously you're going to support the airway. Obviously, hopefully, obviously you're going to give intralipid. That's like the, the one thing you have to know about the last treatment. And so what you're left with is this. And so the reason it's the answer, as I said, is because you actually give less epinephrine for last than you do for other forms of cardiac arrest. But even if you didn't know that, you should end up with that as the only possible answer. And that is you did. That is the key point that in last, the epi dose is I think it's 0.1, right? It's much one mix per kg yeah, than, than if it were ACLS. Okay, so moving on to our next key point, which is key point five, which are complications. Commonly tested, tested in 2015, 18, and 21. Um, it's difficult sometimes to parse out like what's an epidural complication versus just uh, a nerve injury from labor, from stirrups, from like, stretch injuries. And those are common questions. Like, was this a labor epidural issue? Or is this from like just being in labor and having a baby issue? And then they want you to know about things that are common, like sympathectomy, hypotension, and then things that could be like life or limb threatening, like an epidural abscess. So those are the more common ones they're going to ask about. So one day after a vaginal hysterectomy under epidural anesthesia, a patient has numbness and inability to dorsiflex the right foot. Her legs were placed in leg holders during the operation. The most likely causes A, epidural hematoma, B, common peroneal nerve injury, C, sacral nerve root injury, D, sacral plexus injury, E, sciatic nerve injury. So very common question, almost always getting at some similar form of this, which is that common peroneal nerve injury is common, especially if you're in stirrups. And um, so B is the answer here. And that this is way more common than like an epidural hematoma. Exactly. Or an epidural complication, right? Yeah. Okay. So and I just want to back up. I, I, I misspoke. I, I said 0.1 mix per kick, but I think it's just I think it's just 0.1, 1, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah. 100 mice yeah. Yeah, is That's the what dose I for, for the uh, ACLS for... Um, Right. For uh, last, I mean, for the uh, epinephrine dose for last is, yeah, you start with 100 mics, 0.1 uh, milligrams, not, not per kilo. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So next question. So 48 hours after thoracotomy, a patient's T6 to 7 epidural catheter is removed and the distal two centimeter is noted to be missing. The patient felt no pain during removal and neurologic exam shows no abnormalities. After informing the patient, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A, observation, B, culture of CSF. C, MRI of the thoracic spine, D, myelography, E, surgical remover of the catheter. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think the answer here is just observation. They're asymptomatic um, and to go uh, doing a lot of workup when this may not be an issue is probably yeah. not not uh, going to help. Yeah. And the next question, I'm going to do the next question and then I'll say what I was thinking. So this is a 28 year old. She had a lumbar epidural for labor and delivery during removal of the catheter. One centimeter breaks off and remains in her back. After informing the patient, the most appropriate management is a no intervention unless symptoms occur. B prophylactic antibiotics, C epidural corticosteroids, D dye contrast study of the epidural space, E neurosurgical exploration. So again, a no intervention unless symptoms occur is going to be the answer here. And I put both of these questions in because the answer choices were different, but it sounds crazy. And no one believes me when I first tell them, if your catheter breaks, which honestly, um, in my like 12, 13 years as an attending, I've only ever seen two catheter break and they actually happen to be a bad lot. Like we, it was like an FDA recall because they, the plastic covering was not good. So I've only ever seen them break off twice. One time they actually, it was like the metal coil was actually in there. So it wasn't just like the tip. So they did have to go in and get it. Um, and the other time it was outside. So it didn't really make that big of a difference. But if this does happen to you, you tell the patient and that's it. And the, only, the reason you tell them is because they'll see it if they get imaging at some point further on down the road, they'll, it'll see it that on MRI and they can get these little, like, it's not an abscess, but like your body just kind of walls it off. And so you see these little, like, What's the right word for that? It's not a cyst or an abscess, but this little granuloma. Yeah, granuloma. That's the word I was going for. Yeah. So you don't do yeah. anything. Okay. A woman has weakness of the right quadriceps and a decreased knee jerk reflex on the right one day after forceps delivery under epidural anesthesia. The most likely cause is A, epidural hematoma, B, intrapelvic nerve trauma, C, lithotomy position, D, reaction to the preservative in the anesthetic solution, E, trauma from the epidural needle. And, you know, just test taking skills wise, right? One of these things is not like the other. So four of those five are related to the epidural or the epidural placement, and one is not. And Except one the is, lithotomy uh, position. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I missed that. But we already did one that. very similar to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lithotomy okay. so, it's, so that could be the answer if it was in the peroneal nerve distribution, right? So the fact that this is um, knee-jerk reflex 
um, as opposed to dorsiflexion um, of the foot, right? The one we had before was, um, uh, let's see, which one was it? Just trying to find that question. Um, yeah, dorsiflexion of the right peroneal, foot, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, so that's the common, common, that's the, the one you'll see with the common peroneal nerve injury here. The knee jerk um, reflex is uh, un- less likely to be from lithotomy position and, for, and more likely, given that she had this forceps delivery, to be from intrapelvic nerve trauma. And that's the key is forceps. And the point that I'm trying to bring home here is that I, I think if you look at the literature, like 99.8% like of nerve issues after delivery are not due to the epidural. They're due to other things, but everyone wants to try to blame the epidural. I had, you know, I had an epidural and now I've got, you know, these issues, but it's almost always not related to the epidural. But here's one that might be. So a 75-year-old man received an uneventful epidural anesthetic for total knee arthroplasty. 24 hours later, he has painless flaccid paralysis in both legs. This clinical presentation is most consistent with A, adhesive arachnoiditis, B, anterior spinal artery thrombosis, C, epidural abscess, D, epidural hematoma, E, transverse myelitis. Right in here, right? It's not unilateral. It's not in like one nerve distribution. So this is the kind of thing that's more likely to be from an epidural, in this case, hematoma. It's not that it couldn't be caused by an epidural abscess, though that would tend to probably be more painful. And, you know, there's no reason to think it's likely that he has an epidural abscess um, so quickly as 24 hours. 24 hours. hours. Yeah, I think the timing is probably more, yeah, hematoma. And that painless flaccid paralysis is a very, like, tell in a question stem about an epidural hematoma. So here's another epidural hematoma question. All of the following are symptoms of a developing epidural hematoma, except A, radicular back pain, B, bowel and bladder dysfunction, C, motor deficits, D, fever. Right. And so an epidural hematoma should not necessarily be associated with fever, right? It's not an infection, um, but you certainly can get uh, the other things that are listed there. Right. But an abscess probably would be, right? So if Right. That's probably one way to, to think through an abscess versus a hematoma. But the hematomas would probably develop quicker. And the tough thing about that is if you have an epidural in and it's working and they're like really like numb, it can kind of mask some of these things. And that's the, the tricky part here. Okay. Last question under this category, which is complications. Numbness and tingling on the lateral aspect of the thigh 24 hours after uneventful vaginal delivery is most likely a complication of A, forceps delivery, B, lithotomy position, C, pudendal nerve block, D, lumbar epidural anesthesia, E, spinal anesthesia. And this is another one. What's right up against that lateral thigh and leg, right? It's the lithotomy, um, the stirrups. And so being in that position is, is the most likely thing here. Yeah, it's the, so this is myalgia parasthetica and I'm blanking on the nerve. It's the nerve that goes through the like femoral canal and right over there to the patch on your leg. Is it lateral femoral cutaneous? There you go. That's it. Right. And so from being up in stirrups, it kind of pinches that nerve and you can see these. Yeah. And it can happen just in pregnancy. This is probably too much information, but I had myalgia parasthetica. It's highly annoying, but nothing like problematic. (laughs) Yeah. And that is moving on to our last key point, which are physiological effects of epidurals. Um, They ask about the effects on the GI system. So that was very commonly tested 2008, 11, 14, 17, and 19. Respiratory effects of epidurals tested four times in the last 10 years. Cardiovascular effects. Um, Unfortunately, I actually couldn't find any questions about GI effects, even though I know that they're asking it. So what I'll say is that when you get a sympathectomy, all you have left is the parasympathetic system. So your gut just starts going crazy. So you have this huge increased gut motility. And that's a, a big reason why a lot of our women, not necessarily after epidurals, but after spinals get start retching because their bowels are just going a mile a minute. Mm. Uh, cardiovascular system, you can see, again, if you knock out the sympathetic, you can get the parasympathetic. So you can get bradycardia. You get hypotension from the sympathectomy and the relax, relaxation of the vasculature. And then um, for respiratory type questions, it's actually been shown that patients who are having abdominal or thoracic surgery have a decreased risk of post-op pneumonia if they have an epidural. And you can get dyspnea because if your chest wall isn't moving really well, you can feel short of breath. Obviously, if you get a really high level and you get medullary effects, you can get profound dyspnea and apnea. So those are some of the effects. So I found a few questions. The first one is, which of the following is a cardiorespiratory effect of epidural block to a T4 sensory level? A, decreased expiratory reserve volume. B, decreased tidal volume. C, increased circulating catecholamine concentrations. D, increased heart rate. E, unchanged vital capacity. Yeah, interesting. So, um, you know, you can get rid of some of those, right? So, um, 
you can get rid of increased heart rate because if anything, you know, if you get high enough to get the cardiac accelerators, you're always going to have a decreased heart rate. Um, though T4 is probably not quite high enough. Um, you're not going to get insert, in, increased circulating catapults if you're knocking out sympathetics. Um, so, you know, you're looking at something involving the respiratory system. Uh, it's going to decrease, right? If you get up there where you're affecting the chest wall, which you will at that level, and if you've had a, a, a higher block, women sometimes will say, I feel like I can't breathe, right? Because right. They're, they're, it's the chest wall muscles. They're still breathing fine. They yeah. just feel it. So you will have some change. And uh, if I remember correctly, I think it's going to be decreased expiratory reserve volume, not tight. Exactly. So it's decreased ERV. Uh, the next question here. So you have just administered a bolus of 2% lidocaine, 25 ml. That's a heavy dose. Through an epidural catheter that has been working well for labor analgesia and preparation for emergency cesarean section for fetal distress in an otherwise healthy 35-year-old woman. Shortly after administration of lidocaine, the patient complains of nausea, and you notice that her heart rate has gone from 99 to 38 the most likely cause is A, anaphylactic reaction to lidocaine, B, pneumothorax, C, epidural level is higher than T4, D, amniotic fluid embolus. Right. And as you said, that's a massive dose. That's a probably going to take you well above a level right. of T4. And certainly if you do get up into the T2 or higher level, you will start getting taking out your cardiac accelerator fibers and you will get bradycardia, which is what we're seeing here. So uh, C, epidural level is higher than T4. Right. Yeah. And that, so that's why you get the combination. So if you get the hypotension from the sympathectomy, but your level is high, your body can't react with tachycardia. You actually get bradycardic. And that's why you can spiral into these um, close to coding scenarios. It's more in theory, more common with the spinal. They say one out of a thousand spinals, you can get asystole, which I think of. Knock, 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 knock. <laughs> I've never seen. But the other question they ask is, what drug do you give? And the truth is, like, clinically, right, if I see this, I'm starting to give ephedrine, phenylephrine, maybe some glyco. But the if you see someone going to, like, asystole, the correct answer is actually epinephrine. That's a really very common written quest, test question. Yeah. Okay. So the last question in this topic is the most likely reason for dyspnea in a patient experiencing the effects of a high neuraxial block is A, phrenic nerve palsy when the neuraxial level reaches T3 to T5, B, patient is experiencing an anxiety attack, C, medullary hypoperfusion, or D, congestive heart failure. Yeah, so let's go through them. Phrenic nerve palsy or phrenic nerve paralysis when the neuraxial level reaches T3 to 5. No, right? That's not where the phrenic nerve is. You have to have what? T3, 4, 5. So initially, like that's an easy one to get distracted with because you're like, oh yeah, phrenic nerve palsy, but you need C3, 4, 5 and we're not that high. Right. Uh, anxiety attack. No, that's, you know, blaming the patient is never going to be the right answer. <laughs> right answer right? Yeah. Um, congestive heart failure. No reason to think that a, a given patient who, who would have that unless they have that history. So medullary hyperperfusion, again, you're likely to get hypotensive and then that hypotension is going to lead to some hypoperfusion of the, of the medulla and potentially um, giving that feeling of dyspnea. Dyspnea. And then eventually, if it's really high and you, you get apnea. So that's right. never, never a fun scenario to be in. Um, so that's it for epidural basic and advanced. If I had to pick the highest yield topics, I would say anatomy, uh, local anesthetic toxicity, anticoagulants, and timing with neuraxial blocks, and then physiological effects. Those are the ones that come up just time and time and time again. And then with opioids, they like asking about the lipophilicity and the hydrophilicity. That's a common one too. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Jillian. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. You've always got great ones. What have you got for us this time? Um, so normally I give a book, but I'm not. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my kitchen cooking and cleaning and folding laundry and listening to music. And lately, this is an album I loved, but I've fallen in love with it again. It's um, Paul Simon's Graceland. It's just so good from beginning to end. Every song, it's just so, so good. It's It's just like a quintessential American record. It's just such a great album. And I just, I've been obsessed with it lately. So if you've never listened to the whole thing, Graceland beginning to end, it's just, it's just fantastic. Nice. Very cool. Thank you. And, you know, I uh, will shout out um, a book since you didn't. Um, so uh, common uh, or frequent listeners will remember that I had Mark Newman um, uh, on the podcast to talk about his article on um, uh, general anesthesia versus um, neuraxial anesthesia for hip surgery. And he recommended um, a book, Why Read Moby Dick by Nathaniel Philbrick. Um, and Mark, he's such a good guy. He actually sent me uh, a copy of his book to read. 
And I actually almost wasn't going to read it because I thought, well, you know, I, I think I maybe read Moby Dick or some of it when I was like in middle school or high school, but not since then. And I thought it was probably not worth it if you hadn't read the book or didn't have time to read the actual book. But actually, that's not true. It's a really interesting, very short, very easy read. Um, it's maybe, I, I don't know, maybe it's like a, a hundred pages long and it's very little, 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 little book, like the kind of thing you might find on a coffee table. It's just a little, um, book that is very quick, easy to read. You don't have to have read Moby Dick or have any intention to read it, to read this and kind of just enjoy, um, Philbrick's taking you through what he loves about Moby Dick and the lessons that, you know, he recommends taking from it and, and the history behind its writing. It's really interesting and actually made me want to read Moby Dick. So, um, it may do that to you too, but if you want to check it out, uh, Mark was right. It's really a, a great read. All right, Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Of course. All right. Take care. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Dr. April Liu is our production assistant. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.